Hi, welcome to Cabernet and True Crime. I'm your host, Jana. This is the place where true crime and good wine, that's backwards, but they come together here. <laughs> uh, sorry I missed you last week. I was in Los Angeles living that high life, you know. Um, also, if you hear any snoring, which I'm sure you probably do, um, Penny had to go to the vet today. Your girl has had a pretty gnarly ear infection. If you watch any of my YouTube videos, she's actually pretty much deaf in both ears and the ear infection just keeps coming back. It is what it is. Um, so I'll be real upfront and say this was not my first option for recording today. Uh, luckily, I do have some pre-researched things that I was able to come together and be here for you guys. Uh, the video or the video, sorry, the podcast that I was actually working on for today is going to be a, a big one. It's going to be a doozy and I was trying to edit it today to record today, but it's just, it's just not going to be edited in time. The script's not going to be ready. It's just, it's too much of a, of an ordeal. So <laughs> it will not be done. So today we're going to cover something still equally fun and cool. Uh, just a little shorter than the original plant podcast. Hi, Penny. Um, also, okay. She's really doing some deep snores. Uh, follow me on all social media if you'd like to keep up with the things that I do. I am on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is kind of neglected. It's like the redheaded stepchild. But Instagram, I'm on pretty much every day and I get notifications. So if you want to message me, talk to me, chat, I'm there. And uh, you also get to see cool merch that I made, which also features your girl Penny with some knives. Very cool. Also, final housekeeping item, the podcast is available on all major podcast sites. I noticed there are some issues with Spotify, but I'm finally on Spotify. So if you're a longtime listener, uh, you know that's been like <laughs> one of my, my things that I could never be on Spotify. But I'm finally on Spotify. Um, it's very exciting. And apparently, also, the audio from this will go right over to YouTube as well. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. So if you're watching this on YouTube, hi, I <laughs> hope it works out well. And that, I think, is all my uh, housekeeping that I needed to do before we start. So without further ado, let's get into it. So today we're talking about Bertha Gifford. I don't know if you've ever heard of her or not, but we are going to be talking about her. She was on a list of really notable serial killers, but then when I went to research her, there, was, there, like, there really wasn't anything on her. So actually, for your benefit, I paid $2.99 for a Kindle book that I myself have deemed to be a really good source of information. Uh, it had three really good reviews, and it is 26 pages long. <laughs> it is literally called Bertha Gifford, The Angel of Death, A Tale of Murder and Mayhem's Serial Killer, True Crime Bus Stop Reads Book 8. <laughs> Which is just one mouthful of a title. I love it. It's really great. Um, and then all the information in this, what we're going to talk about today, is really taken from uh, Dangerous Women women serial killers of the 20th century, women who kill serial killers true crime book number four by Sylvia Perini, which is also one hell of a mouthful of a name for a book, but you can find them on Goodreads, you can find them on Kindle, they exist. So if you want to read, I saved you the $2.99, if you want to support them, you can pay the $2.99, but there's nothing in this that you won't be getting that wasn't already in that book. So you're welcome. 
So Bertha Alice Williams was born on October 30th, 1872 in Morris Mill, Missouri. She was the daughter of William Poindexter Williams and his wife, Matilda Lee. Bertha was one of 10 children, but two died in early infancy, leaving six boys and two girls. Uh, She was alleged to be one of the most beautiful women in Jefferson County, where she was born, saying that she had dark hair and a dark complexion. Um, I haven't really seen any real pictures of her other than, like, court drawings, so I cannot confirm nor, nor deny whether she was the most beautiful person there. But, you know, it's fine. <laughs> she married Henry Graham on December something of 1894. Uh, she was 22 at the time, and they had one daughter together named Lila. The couple managed a small boarding house together. Over time, the marriage began to sour, and by the time Bertha was 30 in 1902, there were rumors around town that Henry was seeing another woman on the side. Somewhere in in time in that time, Bertha met a man named Eugene, who was betrothed to another girl. After their meeting, Henry, her husband, became ill and was diagnosed with pneumonia. Bertha never left his side and nursed him constantly, but despite being a strong 34-year-old man, Henry died from violent stomach cramps. After Henry died, uh, (laughs) Bertha married, she remarried after, it was a quote, a respectable amount of time. What amount of time (laughs) that is, I guess, is to be determined. Uh, Bertha collected her insurance payout from her first husband, and Eugene broke off his engagement from the lady he was betrothed to, and they were married in 1907. So his name was Eugene Gifford. This is where Bertha becomes Bertha Gifford, (laughs) if you didn't catch that connection. And they have one child together named James. The family moves to Franklin County, Missouri, and her neighbors reported she was an extraordinary cook. And Eugene was known to be good company, and the couple was respected in their very tight-knit community. She was known in her community for her cooking skills and for her caring for sick neighbors and relatives, and she was known to jump to the aid of the sick and the injured. And in a rural town in the 1900s, it was difficult to get medical aid in an emergency. The newspapers at the time were all about lotions and potions and self-medication, and Bertha herself was known for making concoctions to soothe muscle aches, sprains, and other ailments. And I think you could probably have a a suspicion, one or two of them, as to where this is going to go. And I just want to throw in here, I guess to give the people of the 1900s a little bit of credit, even though the high mortality rates of the era and the amateur use of arsenic for medical reasons at the time, like, nobody could really say for certain, it was really hard to detect this type of behavior. Right, which I mean, I'm not trying to ruin the twist because there really isn't a twist, but it's it's definitely interesting that, I mean, I think in today's society, we're like, holy crap, how could somebody, you know, poison that many people? But at the time, I mean, people, they always, people joke around like, oh, you stub your toe and then you die. <laughs> like, I mean, it kind of was the case and people use arsenic really willy-nilly, even though, like, I mean, we'd obviously know now that it's not a good thing to use to cure people, but people were using arsenic to cure anything from syphilis to cancer to psoriasis. And for a while, I mean, I think you could get away with it without being blatantly obvious for quite some time before people would be like, holy crap, she's up to something, you know? But I, I digress on that one, okay? That's just, just put my little blurb in there. 
1911, Eugene's widowed mother, Emily, and her younger brother, James, move in with the couple. In 1913, Emily becomes ill with stomach cramps and vomiting, and eventually she dies. Bertha arranged the funeral herself. I mean, I guess now that you know, you're like, okay, well, that's kind of weird. But at the time, it's like, wow, she was just, you know, she really loved her mother-in-law, right? Uh, A year later, 13-year-old James died in Bertha's arms from similar symptoms, and that was their son. In 1915, George and Margaret Stuffolder's 15-month-old son becomes sick with pneumonia. That family was a close neighbor to Bertha and Eugene, and Bertha, of course, rose to the occasion of helping out the exhausted couple, obviously a son. An infant with pneumonia has to be terrible. So Bertha was like, hey man, I'll help you out. She stayed by the young boy's bed for three days and nights, and as the toddler writhed in agony with stomach cramps, which I don't think is a a symptom of pneumonia. And after a quick Google search of can pneumonia cause abdominal pain, here's a quote from a medical website. Pneumonia is a known cause of abdominal pain in cases of pediatric patients. On the contrary, the general practitioner tends to associate community-acquired pneumonia with chest symptoms, which you think pneumonia is usually a pain in the lungs with like coughing and stuff. So you'd think maybe stomach pain, but maybe, okay, fine. I'll give her, I'll even give her the credit here that it's like, okay, the poor thing, he had stomach cramps from having pneumonia, and he, the 15-month-old, eventually died. In 1917, Sherman Pounds, a relative of Eugene's, arrived drunk on Bertha and Eugene's doorstep. He was a large, strong, 53-year-old man. He was a widower with five children who occasionally liked to drink. Um, He arrived drunk on their doorstep. Eugene and Bertha gave him a place to stay for the evening, and Bertha made him a tonic. He awoke in the middle of the night with stomach cramps and was dead by the morning. A doctor declared the cause of death was from his drinking. In November of 1917, a hired helper of Eugene's, Jim Ogle, had complained that Eugene and Bertha were jipping him of his money. He became ill with what a doctor said was malaria. And Bertha was like, sick, I'll take care of him. I, you know, I know how to treat malaria. Sorry, Penny's on the move. Penny decided she didn't want to be in here anymore, so she has she has left the building, well, the room at least, and now she's coming back. She's out now. That's my decision. Okay, so sorry. Um, as a reminder, this is an unedited, uh, let's talk shit about people with each other, so um, <laughs> that's, here we go. Okay, so November, 7, November of 1917, Jim Ogle, he, he has malaria somehow. Uh, Bertha, once again, is like, yeah, okay, cool. I'll take care of him. Totally, for sure. Um, she, like, winks comically, like, I'll take care of him with a wink. Uh, on November 17th, she went to the pharmacy and complained to the pharmacist that, quote, rats were attacking her chickens, and the pharmacist gives her arsenic-based rat poison, and she signed to acquire it. The following day, Jim was sicker, and the doctor came and said it was still malaria, all right. And then November 20th, Jim died and had gastritis on his death certificate for the cause of death, which is quite interesting that the doctor would say he had malaria all the way up until then, but I guess it's neither here nor there. In December of 1922, Sherman's three-year-old granddaughter, Beulah Pounds, was left in Bertha's care while her mother went Christmas shopping. When Beulah's mother picked her up from the afternoon away, she complained about stomach pains. 
Beulah's mother thought the best course of action was to leave Beulah overnight in in Bertha's homes. That sentence didn't make sense. (laughs) In Bertha's home in hopes that she could nurse the child back to health. The next morning, Beulah was more sick and in an enormous amount of pain. Bertha called for the doctor, but the child was deceased before he arrived. Bertha described Beulah's symptoms before her death, and the doctor wrote out a death certificate, and the cause of death on that as well was gastritis. Now, at this point, right, don't you think it's like a little bit suspicious that all these people are kind of getting sick and dying in Bertha's, (laughs) I mean, circle of influence? Uh, And especially people who, okay, you could even make the argument here that people who are sick and she tries to, like, treat them, and then they get sicker. Like, maybe she's just a really bad doctor. Like, she's just shit at curing people. But then you have people who are super healthy, and they're fine, and then they get sick. So, you, you like I was saying before, you could have the argument that, oh, maybe she's just really shit at making people better, but the fact that she's attacking healthy people and making them sick, well, then you could say, well, she definitely knew, she knew what she was doing, and that's the problem, <laughs> is that she was fucking poisoning people and getting away with it. Okay. So, Beulah was buried on January 5th, 1923, and Bertha was unable to attend the funeral because she was mad that Beulah's aunt wanted a post-mortem done on Beulah. The aunt was unhappy, especially after having both her uncle and niece die in a similar fashion while under Bertha's care. Fair enough. And the doctor, however, didn't think anything was amiss, and Beulah's parents thought a post-mortem would be too expensive, therefore no autopsy was formed. Okay. Um, I just think it's wild that the doctor was like, no, 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 no. Like, this is totally kosher. This is absolutely fine. Nothing suspicious is happening here. What are you talking about? But okay. Uh, There was another local family around town that associated themselves with the Giffords. Uh, Their names were George and Ethel Shamil. George frequently helped Eugene out on the farm. And in June of 1925, Ethel, who was 33, became ill. Bertha nursed her, but Ethel died. Eight weeks later, George and Ethel's son, Lloyd, who was nine, died of gastritis while sleeping at Bertha's house. Eight weeks after that, Lloyd's brother, who was seven, also died under Bertha's care. Which is just insane. Stop hanging out at their house. Like, stop. And I don't, I don't mean to laugh because it's not, it's not funny, but it's also like, just stop hanging out with them. If all these people keep going to their house, like, even if you didn't think it was Bertha or, you know, even Eugene, if you didn't think it was either of them doing anything nefarious, obviously all these people are going to their house and all these people are getting sick. Wouldn't you think, like, well, it could be something in their drinking water. It could be something in their food. Something's not right. And people keep getting sick at this house. So I'm going to stop going there and hopefully I don't get sick. But maybe that's just, you know... My thought, I'm also kind of uh, not skeptical, but also like if I were to see a billion people get sick and especially a billion people in my family getting sick at one person's house, I'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to go there and eat anything that they make for me because, you know, I saw all these people get sick. I don't want to get sick. That's just my train of thought. So a month after that, so a month after this whole family, Ethel, her son, and her other son all pass away under Bertha's care. George Shamel, his sister Leona, 
becomes ill and is vomiting. And guess who takes care of her? Bertha. And then Leona died in October at the age of 37. Uh, the local doctor signed all of the death certificates. So every single one that we've just mentioned, all four of those death certificates were signed as gastroenteritis. So after both Shamel's sons, Lloyd and Elmer, had died, especially so close together, that's when the people begin to talk in town. And like, really? Not before that. Now is when we're like, shit, <laughs> this, something's up. And I, I wonder if it's because, which once again, I'll go back to what I said earlier that, you know, the high mortality rate, but I do think it's very suspicious that all these people, and maybe they're even justifying it. So I'm trying to give them like the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're justifying it. They're like, oh, all these people were already sick for some reason. And then they went to Bertha's house to get unsick. And then they just happened to die there because like it was th this time in our American development and people just had a higher mortality rate so they didn't think anything of it but also I don't know how many I would like to know the mortality rates at the neighbor's house like are, are people just dying this frequently everywhere or is it just really specifically at this serial killer's house that's <laughs> that's the million dollar question I guess so it's possible that people were always suspicious of Bertha, but never voiced their opinion. I will, that's the kind of the other side of the coin. Like, either people were just saying, like, oh, people are sick and Bertha's helping them. She's shit at her job. People just keep dying over there. Or people were scared to talk about Bertha because obviously she was really good at what she was doing, which is killing people. So either she was really bad at healing people or really good at killing people, depending on how you look at it, right? So they never voiced their opinion. And apparently there was a, there was this quote in this book that I read, and apparently Bertha enjoyed reading about murders and accidents in the newspapers and enjoyed talking about them. So was Bertha like the OG murderino who took it a little too far? Possibly, because that's a weird thing to, to point out. Um, yeah. And also another thing about all this too, though, another hidden layer to this, prohibition was a thing at the time. Apparently, Eugene had a whiskey still in one of his barns, which a friend of his named Gus would sell in nearby towns. And legend goes that Eugene and Gus had some kind of heated argument and Bertha was so mad she chased Gus with a butcher knife and I guess, well, murdering somebody with a butcher knife would be a very hands-on and you know, personal death, which I just don't see is Bertha's scene. She's more of like a, you know, yeah, she's more of like, I'm just going to poison you and walk away type thing and pretend to be this good person where you can't really do that. You can't claim to be healing somebody with a butcher knife. That's not really how that scenario really plays out. There's no way to like slough that off as, oops, I didn't, I didn't do anything. Okay. Moving forward. In 1926, Gus's mother becomes ill, and I just forgetting the fight. I don't know, I quoted this from the book, but forgetting the fight. Uh, oh, there's, there's missing words in this sentence. Okay. In 1926, Gus, Gus's mother became ill, and Bertha offered to nurse her. And of course, Gus's mother died. Um, 
forgetting the fight. Oh, yes. <laughs> from from almost being murdered with a butcher knife. I yeah, listen. It's been a really long day. Uh, okay. Which I apologize for saying um so many times. I do this every time. I get nervous, man. I get nervous in the in these these private conversations with a bunch of people. On May 15th, 1927, Edward Brinley, who is an alcoholic and an ex-butcher from a nearby town, who is now working for Eugene as a farmhand, he was drunk outside Bertha's front door. Which, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs, you know where this is going. Apparently, Bertha, Bertha really didn't like drunk people to show up outside their front door, which, understandable, I don't like that either. Uh, Eugene helped him inside and into bed, and Bertha got him a glass of homemade lemonade. He died of stomach pains and agony later in the afternoon. The local doctor, who was nervous about all the gossip about Bertha, called in another doctor for a second opinion, and apparently they couldn't agree because two different cause of deaths are written on the certificate. One is, uh, quote, acute unknown disease slash acute gastritis, and the other one is, quote, cause not known. No autopsy was caused for, and Bertha organized the funeral herself. Which, that's kind of a weird thing to point out. Why is she organizing all these all these funerals? I'd like to know. If you're, like, a historian and you know something about it, I'm interested as to why Bertha could just, like, organize... Like, is she paying for them, or is she just kind of like, hey, I'll host it? I'm intrigued. Also, good on her husband, because he's made it through a lot. And usually, statistically, spouses don't make it the longest so he must, Eugene must have been a Bertha whisperer because he, he did a great, a great job in this situation. Well, not great because he was probably an accomplice to her murdering, but also great on him for kind of saving his own skin, I suppose, because she's just a tyrant, it, it appears. So the death of Edward Brinley, the man we just talked about, the farmhand who showed up drunk outside the door with the the mishap of the cause of death on the death certificate. He caused Bertha a great deal of trouble, um, meaning that the rumors ran wild with accusations and gossip, and this all reached the ears of a man named Frank Jenny, and he was an up-and-coming prosecuting attorney. So six months after the death of Edward Brinley, Jenny began looking into the rumors and deaths surrounding Bertha, apparently the first person with the balls to do so, understandably. So <laughs> she and her husband were upset that anyone would insinuate such things about Bertha, meaning Bertha and her husband were mad at people who would even bring up the fact that she could murder somebody. So Eugene would hurl, would yell and hurl abuse at anyone that would gossip and people who had been scheduled to give evidence in front of the grand jury back down. So basically, Frank Jenny is like, I'm taking you guys to court. I'm thinking you killed Edward Brinley. And Eugene and Bertha would just bully people out of giving their statements. And so at the end of the day, the grand jury was unwilling to indict Bertha because they didn't feel as though they had enough evidence. Well, they didn't have enough evidence because there wasn't anybody there who was willing to talk about Bertha or anything she did or any of their suspicions because who knows? She has successfully killed this many people. I would be suspicious and alarmed for my own personal health and safety that maybe Bertha might kill me. It's highly likely she's done it before. And you know she's done it before. 
So a few months later after this, after their first initial attempt at a trial, well, I guess not a trial, but they're trying to indict her. They're trying to get Bertha in trouble for murders and people, they've got people to back down. So a few months after that, the unrelenting Frank Jenny found the record book of poisons that showed Bertha buying inordinate amounts of arsenic since 1911. For every purchase, her reasoning was written down as, quote, for rats. Once the second investigation began, Bertha and Eugene moved to Eureka, Missouri. The story became national news, and as it spread, Frank Jenny received phone calls and letters from people who claimed their friends or relatives had passed away in Bertha's care. The official number of questionable deaths rose from the original nine to over 17. On August 23, 1928, the jury indicted Bertha Gifford with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Edward Brinley and Elmer Shamel. So as a reminder, Elmer Shamel was one of the boys that she had killed. Um, first, she had killed the mom and then the older brother, then Elmer, then the dad's sister. That was kind of like that whole thing. The first rant of many that I went down. Two days after this, so on August 25th, Bertha was arrested in Eureka. And honestly, I think they they moved to get away from the rumors, but I don't think they, they really thought that through because they moved to get away from the rumors, but they didn't think that Jenny was going to follow them, except he did. And then also, I think the fact that Bertha and Eugene weren't such a huge presence in their original town anymore that the people who lived there were willing to speak up about it now because, you know, they're like, oh, well, crap, what are they going to do? Mail me poison? Like, they're <laughs> it's like they're not going to. So, I think that the, this was like a dual-faceted thing. Like, Jenny was trying to get Bertha, which, good on him, but they moved at the same time. So, it all kind of, it was like the perfect storm, which is a great movie, by the way. So, over tea, Bertha began talking about the gossip around town and in short, she said she never gave Beulah arsenic. She said that she had given arsenic to Elmer and Lloyd Shamel and also Edward Brinley to ease their pain. Um, so yeah, <laughs> she gets arrested and then they have this huge conversation over tea to discuss like how she casually just killed people. Um, and for the record, Beulah was the mom of Elmer and Lloyd Shamel, just to give you a, a rider. We've gone down some, several pathways up to now. Uh, after more questioning, Bertha said she may have given arsenic to, quote, one or two others. So, which is a lie, obviously. Uh, her confession was written and Bertha was driven to jail. The next day, newspapers had printed her confession and she vehemently denied it. Okay. Uh, Eugene defended his wife, saying she only confessed because she was agitated. Uh, the, the Giffords, so Eugene and Bertha, they got a top lawyer on their side, and so they pled, well, she pled, not guilty. In September of 1928, the corpses of Edward Brinley and the Shamel boys were exhumed. Uh, significant amounts of arsenic were found in these bodies, which brought us to the trial. So Bertha's trial began on November 19th, 1928. It made national headlines, which in 1928 was pretty big news. A murder trial was a significant event, and it was, quote, something to look forward to and something worth gossip and speculation, which I guess is fair. You know, there were, what else was going on? Not much. Uh, so, murder trials. Everybody's always been fascinated with murders. It's just human nature to be intrigued by it, I suppose. 
So reporters and crowds filled the courtroom and corridors, and those who couldn't fit in the courtroom were outside waiting to hear the juicy details. Understandable. The Bertha Gifford, who used to be known for her beauty, was anything but that. She was described in the newspapers as, quote, thick and heavy set with a weather-beaten, furrowed face and eyes that were dead. It's one hell of a description, and I'm sure she loved that. But also, I mean, I didn't see any, there's like hardly any pictures of her existing as a younger, as a younger person. So also, she didn't have a lot of time to keep up with her appearance because she's so busy fucking murdering people. And who knows, she might have, once again, she might have been using arsenic on herself It worried that somebody might try to kill her. Who knows? Some people, like, try to microdose with poisons. I saw that on TikTok. I doubt that's actually true. That's fine. Um, so she's in jail because she's on trial. She's been arrested for obvious reasons. Rumors about her jail behavior, while absurd, were, like, really actually entertaining to me because this... Well, you have to assume up until now, like, I don't, I don't want to give her any credit, but she has to be at least a moderately charismatic individual, right? Because you have to be to get away with this for as long as you do. Or, I mean, she just has to be really, really scary. So either, either she's really charismatic or she's really fucking scary or maybe a combo of the two, who knows? But she, she got away with this for so long, right? And so her, her jail behavior is silly. And this is a direct quote from the book. She hid under a blanket in the jail cell during the day and at night wore a blood red robe and paced up and down howling like a werewolf. Or she was clutching at the bars at the window and cursing out the window. That's more likely um, because where did she get a blood red, blood red robe? Say that five times fast. And she, she couldn't just like pace up and down the, the room like a werewolf. That's also weird. I feel like somebody would have told her to stop at that point as well. But yeah, um, I can see her uh, clutching at the bars of the windows and yelling out at people. That seems a little more on brand <laughs> for Bertha. So rumors stated that she would only eat ice cream and that she refused to talk to anyone but Eugene and would only do so if dressed in a pristine white nurse's uniform. I also don't believe any of that. That's just really silly. And I think if she were, if you were in jail in 1928 and you're like, yo, <laughs> I'm only eating ice cream and I'm only wearing nurses outfits. I think they'd be like, yeah, no, like that's not how this is going to go. Thank you for trying. Thanks for playing. <laughs> right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't think that's real life, but that's what the book said. She possibly did. Also, like, I feel like surrounding murder trials and, like, I guess even at this time when there's so much attention on a case, rumors fly and people get crazy. I mean, look at the the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, you know, trial right now. Like, there's so many things on there that, like, yeah, I bet a lot of it, not even what they're arguing about. I'm Team Johnny. But, you know, just the stuff you see on TikTok of, like, was Amber Heard doing cocaine during the court? Or, like, you don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's something interesting to speculate about, but whether it's actually true or not, I don't know. I guess we'll never know. But stuff like that is kind of silly. And I think this is just really that kind of stuff again. Like, everybody wanted to see, like, the great Bertha Gifford, who, you know, was this crazy, scary person. And they, she's kind of like a boogeyman at this point for people because, you know, they'd never seen this kind of stuff before. So I think it just was silly, silly, goofy stuff that people did. So the trial itself, and especially when the trial was only this long, I mean, you kind of have to make it silly while she was waiting to go on trial. The trial only lasted four days. 
Uh, prosecution and defense both agreed on one thing, and that one thing was that Bertha wasn't sane, <laughs> which is just... That's not a good thing for prosecution and defense to agree upon, is that you're insane. Like, okay, cool. Bingo, bango. That's that's it. You know, that's all she wrote. Uh, so prosecution wanted her locked up for life, but defense wanted a possibility of release if she, quote, recovered. Whatever that means. A uh, little vague on that description there. So the jury only met for three hours. And came to the conclusion that Bertha Gifford was guilty of the deaths of uh, Brinley and both Shamal brothers. And she had done so while insane and that she remained insane. Which I don't know if the um, the rumors about her jail behavior had something to do with that. Or if she actually did those things in an, in an attempt to appear insane. Because we've seen that before. So I, I don't know. that It could be whatever. But she... <laughs> People thought she was crazy, and you know what? Fair enough. Uh, the judge sentenced her to life confinement in the mentally insane unit of the state hospital in Farmington, Missouri. So she was only tried and convicted of three murders, but the number is believed to be 17 plus, like I said before. Um, her, And actually, you could argue that maybe she she didn't kill some of those people or she like accidentally killed some of those people or she intentionally killed those people. You could really make, not for, for some of them, she definitely killed, but you could make an argument for kind of anything in the middle, really. So Bertha passed away on August 20th, 1951. She was in a mental institution for 23 years. Uh, Eugene, who is still alive and still faithful as ever, uh, he took her body back to a funeral in Morse Mill, and her grave is unmarked for really obvious reasons. Um, Eugene stayed in Eureka and died in 1957, so uh, six years after his wife died. Um, really interesting stance to be loyal for that long, but I mean, good for him. He loved his wife, and he might have been her accomplice, but who knows? He wasn't ever tried for the murders, so either he was completely innocent and a faithful husband, or he was complicit and let his wife take the fall for all of it. That's for you to decide. And, uh, that's kind of where our story ends. Kind of on a weird note, um, but that's fine. So, yeah, that was your, uh, True Crime Tuesday. Even though I missed one, it's fine. And, yeah, uh... Next week is going to be a doozy. I'm really excited to present it to you guys. I did a lot of research on it, more than I expected to do. But the thing is, you find some good, like, resources, and then you find some real shit resources. And those shit resources are really just headache-inducing because they're not that good. And then the shit resources have different dates than the good resources. And then you have to dig down to figure out what dates are real and who is real and what is real. And it's hard to, it's hard to find those things out if you don't really know what you're looking for. So it's been uh, quite the debacle is what I'll say. But you'll know more about it next week because I keep them a secret till I post them. And uh, you don't even know, really. Well, now now that I change artwork, you kind of know who I'm going to cover before I do it because I at least give you a picture. But like I said, the titles are never, ever, ever the name of the people. So I like to keep it a mystery all the way up until the very end so you never know what to expect. Um, that's it. So like I said, follow me on my social medias if you're watching this on YouTube. Comment, like, subscribe. Uh... And all that other bull hooky, I don't know. 
<laughs> this is the part that I never know how to end. So I'll just say, uh, bye.